Clarita here, and I've got a new sponsor, DistroKid. If you want to release your music into the world, DistroKid's the easiest way to get your music into all the major streaming platforms, unlimited uploads, and keep 100% of your royalties. And because you're a Design Freaks listener, you get 30% off. Go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash Design Freaks. DistroKid. This episode is sponsored by Isotope. Their audio software like RX helps to clean up my recordings, and they have a ton of other products on their site, isotope.com slash ruinous. Right now, Ruinous Media and Fretboard Journal listeners save 10% at checkout on any Isotope plugin or bundle using the code FRET10. So if you have a podcast or produce music, go to isotope.com slash ruinous and shop their award-winning audio production products and save 10% off your order with the code FRET10. Make your audio sound better. Welcome to episode 31, the soundtracks episode with Deadbeat Film Society. This is the Design Freaks podcast. It's a show about record covers, graphic design, music design, design history, and how all those things form a kaleidoscopic undercurrent that exists inside all of our subconscious minds. My name's Clarita. I live in Seattle. I like researching and talking to people about record cover design, uh, record label design, artists and such. Why not? I hope everyone out there is doing well and getting vaccinated. Hey, thank you for your support, listeners. Uh, If you like the show, please leave a review. And thank you. I got a new review. I have like five now. (laughs) Brag much. Um, Thank you to Sakai Champion, for the five-star review. It's uh, such a delight when I get one. Um, Also, tell your designer and vinyl collector friends. Send me notes, DMs, emails, questions, jokes. Please do not drag me. I will die. Thank you. Uh, You can find photos and other info about this in every episode I've done, all 31 flavors, at designfreakspodcast.com. And check out all the other killer podcasts at ruinousmedia.com. There's some great new shows and merch, and I'm working on some new merch, promise. Uh, So follow my socials and stuff and stay up to date. So my guests on this episode are Emily and Kevin, a couple of deadbeats uh, from the movie podcast called Deadbeat Film Society. Uh, I was recently a guest on their show, And I got to be on the episode all about the amazing movie, Phantom of the Paradise. So we kind of talk about some stuff we didn't cover on their show. And then uh, some other funny soundtrack-related thoughts and uh, feelings uh, and reflections. (laughs) And there are some very controversial opinions flying around. I think you're going to like it. Anyways, thank you for listening and enjoy. Emily and Kevin, how are you all doing? Officially Great. recording now. Doing Great. well, doing really well, <laughs> all things considered. Well, thank you for joining me. It's so fun to have. I think this is the first time I have fellow podcasters on. Yes, so. we are from the Debbie Film Society. 
along with being official deadbeats, we are also amateur designers and professional freaks. So we feel very welcome <laughs> amongst the design freaks. We'll make sure to set the bar nice and low. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so I wanted to ask you for anyone who doesn't, who maybe didn't hear the show I was on, the episode I was on of your show, um, maybe uh, my listeners might want to hear a little description of what you do. You have how many episodes now of your show? So we're at, um, as of recording, we're at 111 um, so we've been doing this for quite a while. I want to say like four years. We Congrats. we drop four episodes every change. two weeks, so it's you know yeah, mm-hmm. it's like four four years. Awesome. Um, yes, we had Clarita on episode. I'm looking it up now, episode 109. So it was kind of mm-hmm. recently. We talked about Phantom of the Paradise. The Debbie Film Society is our podcast where we talk about important films. It's Emily and I, and we sit down with a guest like Clarita, and we talk about. An important film from history. Is this film important? Do we need to remember it? Do we care about this film and why? Uh, I'm so glad you picked Phantom of the Paradise because that was like so much fun to talk about. Um, There's a lot of great music and the vibe of it is totally Emily and I. Usually we're talking about like the sound of music we've done recently. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the like Casablanca, these kind of like big, large Hollywood films. And so it's fun to kind of dive into the cult world. So... With that, we've done all kinds of films. You might have your favorite film in there. We've done documentaries. We've done war films. We've done comedies. Um, we've done art films, foreign films. Um, Super yeah. old films, new releases. Mm-hmm. We're not film experts, but we love art and culture and people. And so we usually have a little bit um, of a different take than some of the other film podcasts that mm. are more cinema-focused. That is exactly what I was going to say, because even the big films um, – I just hearing the conversational style of y'all breaking it down, I've noticed and discovered new things I never thought of. Nice. Like in like I love Repo Man's my favorite movie of all time. Mm, and I'm a big one. Alex Cox fan. But I never thought about the alien in the trunk as the what is it called? The um MacGuffin? Yeah. Mm, MacGuffin, yes. Like, oh, right. I guess it would be, even though it made the car fly at the anyways. But yeah, it, make, it, it gives me a conversation in my head and it's really fun and kind of uh, engaging. Yeah. And I think like our guests, like Emily was saying, not only are we not film experts and coming at it from sort of like we have art backgrounds. And so we're looking at film like a form of art. So we're critiquing it and analyzing it like art, not like film. Um, and a lot of the guests we've had on our artists, like you mentioned the Repo Man episode, we don't Anders. Barakos, I don't remember how to pronounce his last name, Uh, who's an amazing (laughs) comic book artist. And uh, we've had designers and uh, mostly local to Seattle, um, but a lot of like really great people with different perspectives than maybe, you know, your typical newspaper film critic, which can get old. And you can kind of get that anywhere, right? We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. Um, so in the episode I was on, we talked about uh, the movie. Um, we kind of broke it down to, you know, the characters. We com- we made the connection between Darth Vader and the main character. Um, what was his name again? Uh, oh, Laszlo? You mean the Phantom? Winslow. Winslow. <laughs> Winslow. 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 That's it. Winslow. Carl Winslow. <laughs> He's from Family Matters. <laughs> 
Yes, <laughs> dad. Um, also, the cop in Die Hard. Speaking of, yep. yeah, same yeah. character, probably the same um, role. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So we talked about kind of the archetypes there, and and the 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 way that the similarities between Darth Vader and that character. Also, the similarities between Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I didn't yes. really think about. Like and Rocky Beast. Horror probably just bit this movie yeah. off mm-hmm. because there's a scene in it where Beef comes out of a coffin and he's wearing like fishnet tights and a bustier mm-hmm. and has lipstick and he has got the curl. He 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 looks exactly like um, Dr. Frankenfurter, right? And then character wise, he is like Rocky Horror. Mm-hmm. So, so they like broke that up into two different parts. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Um, and also, um, I kind of did a little bit more looking into um, the the synthesizer itself, which was one of the characters in the movie, I feel like. Oh, yes. Our favorite. I do <laughs> It remember. had its own room. It did have its own room, like this it's ball of synthesizers. And with Darth like that. Vader was it? has that. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, that's right. Does. That's right. Yeah. And, and it was like connected to his chest so that he could speak mm-hmm. through it, just like Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember in that little ballroom, there was green carpet, right? Was it carpet or was it like AstroTurf? I thought it was, I thought it was carpet for the sound effect. Sound. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Kind of dead yeah. in the sound. I also like the idea of him like taking off his shoes and socks and kind of like kneading his toes <laughs> in a white rights. <laughs> Just relax. Or Winslow, he needs a break. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough being the phantom. Um. So, yeah. So I looked in, so that's called the, um, the it is it's a real synthesizer it's called the tonto it's the original new timber orchestra new timbrel orchestra it lives in canada wasn't the phantom the phantom of the paradise was like really huge in canada remember it yeah, was like in winnipeg or something winnipeg. it was massive like it, it played for like seven years straight and they had phantom uh Phantom of the Paradise, like conventions, and Paul Williams even went and sang at one of them. I wonder if is that where the Tonto is? The synth is the big draw. I don't think that that's where it lives, but I bet they, maybe it's in I, Toronto and somebody stole the R. And they I think the so, but if it's able to be moved, I'm sure they've put it in the festival before. The, yeah, yeah, good call. How sweet would it be to go to that festival and oh. see Paul Williams wail on that thing? Bunch of people have recorded on it, or yeah, it's a recording and production device. So oh, wow. it's crazy. Polyphonic um, synth, multi timbral is another word. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyways, yeah. and then the the creator of it, uh, Malcolm Cecil, um, had a band called the uh, Tonto Headband, and they put out an album to no acclaim. But it became yeah. like, Shocker. like, yeah, but like the movie, it became like popular later in um, Canada. I think, I think <laughs> in in a lot of places. Yeah, it's a trippy album. There are um, literally dozens of us <laughs> Tonto fans. Is it like, is it Tonto. like Tonto from The Lone Ranger? Is that what it's? No, it's to an be? acronym. Oh, yeah, okay. it's the original New Timbrel Orchestra. Okay. So, yeah, it comes from the word multi-timbral, which is a music term. I don't know. I'm not a musician. I like yeah, music. Yeah, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, like the film uh, Phantom of the Paradise, it was not a success, but it became kind of a cult thing. And then also I wanted to say an, an epiphany I had after we recorded that 
is Phantom of the Paradise itself became a phantom living in the shadows of the bigger movies that it influenced. Oh, that's so interesting. Isn't Dang. That weird? Wow. <laughs> this is like a seriously meta. They're just like Shrek. There are layers to this movie. <laughs> it's an onion. <laughs> so many layers. Uh, <laughs> um, anyways, and then I was going to uh, post in the show notes a link to, but I don't want to put, uh, I don't want to sell merch for other people, but I, I'll just put a photo somewhere up of that beef t-shirt. It's a really amazing t-shirt. I think we should all get them and then meet up, take a bus to Winnipeg. <laughs> I do want to go to the next convention. <laughs> I would love to go to the next convention. Yeah. I feel like I if we get the shirt, we have to coordinate getting it two sizes too small. So it looks like extra. Beef. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. <laughs> I mean, regardless, I'm, I'm cutting into a crop top and the <laughs> sleeves are gone. Either the sleeves are gone or you're going to, I'm going to like fringe them, you know? Like yeah. As soon as you put it on, they blow <laughs> off. Your body. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> beef. Oh my God. I just, there's so many funny things about that movie and there is a lot of weird bootleg merch out there. Mm -hmm. I was looking at today. It's incredible. Um, we were saying before we started recording, there needs to be the, um, the grill, the Winslow grill. Yeah. Yeah. The Phantom has like, for whatever reason, he goes to prison and they pull out his teeth and put metal ones in, which I commented is like my dream because then you wouldn't have to brush your teeth, but, and you could bite things like, I don't know, candy. Um, but like him smiling with those metal teeth, like jaws from James Bond would be really cool and intimidating. Um, it would be COVID really times. cool. But I also would love the mask cool. that he wears, like that silver eagle vulture kind of a mask thing mm -hmm. that he's got on would be really cool to have just, you know, to wear and go shopping. And <laughs> Another weird thing about the podcast itself yeah, I didn't know when you were going to release it, and I didn't know when Ruinous would be done mastering my episode for MF Doom. They were released on the same day. They're both wearing metal masks. What? Spooky. Isn't that weird? That's a synergy for sure. The whole thing, everything both about geniuses. <laughs> R.I.P. to both of them. It's fantastic. They were both living in the shadows. Oh, man. I know you have uh, a new episode out on I Love the Battle of Algiers. That's a great movie. Famously known for its soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting because that was definitely one of those movies that's like, I, I call it like the anarchist cookbook of movies, not just because of its subject matter. I mean, the movie is essentially how to be a terrorist and win. Um, but also it's like one of those things that you would buy and put on a shelf to like look cool, but you've never actually read. And so the battle of the years is something that's been in my queue on canopy for like years and I have never watched it. And so I watched it for the podcast and I loved it, but Emily's right. I think she's joking, but it seriously is known for its soundtrack. Really? It's I done by Ennio Marconi. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Ennio Marconi made the was? soundtrack. I haven't seen it. It's in years. fantastic. It's very percussive and he does this thing where he's trying to mirror the soundtrack to or the score to the scenes that are happening. So it almost sounds like diegetic sound. Like, for example, there's a part where there, there is like um, they're building a bomb or they're building ammunitions or something. And so there's kind of like this uh, recurring like ch -ch 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 kind of a sound. And then he's got drums going that are in the same 
the same um, drum pattern as what's happening on screen. And then the drums get louder and it sort of becomes this theme as then they go out into the streets in a march. So he does a lot of that kind of stuff where he's like using the sound within the film to influence what wow. his score is doing. Um, he's kind of a master. Amazing. So, he is a master. I think people oh, may know so Ennio Morricone most famously from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and those spaghetti westerns mm-hmm. where he kind of invented that like wah, 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 kind of thing. And Speaking of first first records, that was one of um, the record that my mom owned with three movie soundtracks on one. <laughs> wow. It was the Enio Maricone. It had a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more. And one other one, it might have been good, bad, and the ugly, which is probably why she bought it. Probably. Nice. nice. That's a good one. It had a score. really cool painting on the cover. Oh, yeah. I bet it but did. Anyways. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of soundtracks, Kevin, you were talking about uh, you researched the top three of all time. Yes. So let me songs. hit it with you guys and you guys tell me what you think. So. Top three soundtracks of all time by sales. Number one, The Bodyguard at 45 million in sales. Have you guys seen The Bodyguard? No. Ellie? No. Wow. Very familiar with the soundtrack, but (laughs) not the film. Uh, I'm going to lie. Never seen it either, even though there's a Kevin in it. So you'll have to apologize. (laughs) Um, But Whitney Houston, I think that I Will Always Love You song is probably what catapulted this Mm -hmm. up to the charts. Yeah. One of the things I was curious about as as we were coming on this podcast is like the idea of the soundtrack as an album and who's buying these. Because like if you meet somebody and you're like, oh, what kind of music do you like? I like soundtracks. You're like, okay, well, that's basically code word for you don't like music. Yeah. <laughs> like, or you're in musical theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. It's just like who likes soundtracks? Like, yeah, maybe you buy them, but to, to really be into them. But I think – the soundtracks that really hit are like this, where it's Winnie Houston at the top of her career, putting out a really great song that then is a pop song that hits, you know, the radio charts. It clearly was written for sales. Um, but the album in and of itself, I thought was interesting because we were looking, Emily and I were looking at album art of soundtracks and like 99.9% of the time, it's just the movie poster. So it's kind of boring. Like nobody really takes chances and, I was thinking about that, and it just seems like kind of a bummer. Like you, you, you can't. That's where you could take chances. You could, you could put out a cool, you know, hire a, a, an up and coming design firm for cheap, and put out some cool art that you, then you can use to um, subsequently promote the movie when it comes out on DVD or whatever. But instead, they just put the movie. It seems like the opposite. The point of the soundtrack is sort of continue to promote the movie. Yeah, um, I know, and it's also a pain in the ass for the designer to take that shape. And repurpose it yeah. into a square. Yeah, the good album. point. Like, that's so annoying. That is yeah. a really great point. Yeah. So it would be better to just do something separately for for music. Yeah, especially yeah. considering it's already an image that everyone's already seen. I feel like The Bodyguard was a huge film, mm-hmm. right? So everybody's already seen that picture. Although it would kind yeah. of like connect it. I don't know why I'm remembering this, but I feel like there was a time when record stores existed. And you would go in and, and you would see like i don't want to call them bootlegs but maybe alternate versions of things and yeah just knowing that you would get the official soundtrack is maybe a big deal and so mm-hmm. to have the official poster art would be the connection you need so i don't know i know that clarita doesn't know this i don't know if kevin knows this the first cd that i ever got was a soundtrack and i asked oh. for it for my ninth birthday and it was the only thing i wanted my mom had just gotten a disc man and so cds were brand new and I really wanted the soundtrack from The Mask. 
<laughs> what the hell was on that soundtrack? Okay, so wait, 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 wait. Pause. Is Louis this Prima. the share movie, <laughs> or is this the Jim Carrey movie? The Jim Carrey movie. Ooh, Samoke. So I definitely got it for my birthday, and I wanted it because it's full of incredible songs from Escape and Domino and Tony, 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 who was Michael Jackson's <laughs> nephews. Um, it was like a lot of early 90s R&B hits, which is like all I listened to at that point in time. Uh, Fishbone has a song on it. Wow. Yeah. And Brian Setzer Orchestra. So it's like a weird swing early 90s R&B combo. That is weird. weird. It's super weird. I feel like, and Lou Beg, I saw that movie and then just turned his entire career into that. And like Mama yes. Lone Five, it was yes. basically that movie. <laughs> But what, yeah, uh, do you have the album cover art? What is the car- cover? Okay, just so the, the cover art, I was Googling poster. it to try to remember. It's Jim Carrey as the mask, mm-hmm. tipping in his sure, hat, sure. but they changed the design to fit it inside of a circle, smart, because mm-hmm. it's square. Whether it's an album or a CD, it's square. Um, and then there's some text around the circle that says, like, official soundtrack of the mask. Mm, that's interesting. What I was going to say was the bodyguard, the thing that I thought was interesting, the number one, you know, best-selling soundtrack of all time, the album art is different than the poster art. And this is like, we just assumed, oh, all of them are just the poster, but the bodyguard is a great example of one that is not the same because Whitney Houston is such a huge star, they wanted to feature her more. The bodyguard poster is, you know, Kevin Costner holding Whitney Houston. It's very dark it almost looks like rain kind of like a film noir poster but then the soundtrack is whitney houston up front and center up front and, yeah and no uh, one like hey in case you were wondering yeah that song you like it's on this one <laughs> <laughs> yeah kevin costner he's in it too yeah yeah he's on the soundtrack um, you, <laughs> there's you know maybe what, some movie you know dialogue. what's weird another weird thing about soundtracks is i've always noticed that there's songs on the soundtrack that I don't remember that were not prominent mm. oh, in the yeah. movie that were maybe on in the car for like two seconds. But then for some reason, the entire song, yeah, it just seems a bit odd because I guess they're giving credit to the artists. I don't know. I always I thought it was like, weird. oh, we own, we're Warner Brothers and we also own the Warner Brothers catalog. So let's see what we can throw on there to fill mm-hmm. it in. Because I know in that soundtrack, there's that. What's so funny about Peace, Love, and Understanding is on that. It's like a cover, but still, that song, it's very weird. It stands out on there. Oh, um, another thing is when they don't want to pay for the original song yeah. and they get, like, the movie the movie studio people cover it. In the yes. style of. It's like if you buy that karaoke album. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. In the style <laughs> of Whitney Houston. <laughs> oh, man, that rules. Okay, you guys ready for number two? Saturday yeah. Night Fever. Saturday Night Fever, clearly going to be a huge soundtrack. I think the the thing that's interesting about these is that they're movies about music, and so obviously their soundtracks need to be good, one, and two, are going to sell well if the movie does well because people are like, I love that music. Um, I think their ability to sort of capitalize on the disco moment and have the Bee Gees with all these big hits um, right at the same time really made a big difference. But the thing I think is interesting about the – cover art is that it is kind of like a hybrid sort of like what emily was saying where they moved in a square this one it's the poster art with john travolta the big disco ball behind him but for the soundtrack they superimposed the bgs 
in the background in oh. the uh, in the disco ball ah. scene, same as the bodyguard. Like, hey, in case you were wondering, that band you like, yeah, they're on here. <laughs> <laughs> the Saturday kind of, night- almost like using the soundtrack to sort of like reinforce and sell the movie in a way. So it's interesting that yep. you say that because the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack is largely credited for the Disco Sucks movement. Um, before that movie came out, disco was like this underground, um, equal queer dance movement. And then it got co-opted by that film and a bunch of white artists made disco tracks and sold a crap ton of, of copies. And so it's interesting that you were saying they just like commercialized it by saying, hey, here's a band that can sing this music. Let's put them on this cover and we'll sell a billion copies and take over this music form. And it totally worked. Yeah, totally. It's so evil. It's so evil. <laughs> but I think also those songs were written for this movie. From what I understand, I watched a very good Bee Gees documentary on, uh, I want to say HBO Plus or something, but um, super interesting careers. And I'm pretty sure they wrote the songs for this movie and their career was kind of stagnating and because they were like really huge in australia through the actually like psychedelic and chamber pop period and then they kind of stagnated and they were looking for their new voice and so they wrote a bunch of disco hits and like this movie also catapulted their careers and sort of like pegged them as disco artists but um i think it's interesting that these songs were written for this movie and would have been like also maybe the only way that you could get those songs so that could be why the album sold so well yeah versus a different one and maybe the same thing is true for the Whitney Houston one right was it available on one of her records I don't think so yeah that's a good well so I listened to this interview um it's a Dolly Parton yeah Yeah. Jab from Radiolab um did a series I think it might be called Dolly Parton's America but she's um widely interviewed throughout it and there's an episode that talks about the song and she wrote it but it wasn't I don't think she really recorded it and released it to where most people would have known that it was her song and they wanted to use it for the bodyguard and ask for her permission. And she would like loved Whitney Houston and said like, of course. And so that was kind of maybe the first time that a lot of people had heard that song. So I feel like a lot of people think that it's a, like was written for Whitney Houston, even though Dolly yeah, wrote it herself. I don't think Dolly Parton released it. No. I, or, yeah. yeah. She wrote that and Jolene on the same day. But didn't what? Uh, I know it's wild. <laughs> but she didn't. Um, she didn't really release it to where. I mean, kind of like nothing compares to you, where Prince wrote it and recorded it, but didn't release it, and then Sinead came along and blew it out. Yeah, yeah. Willie Nelson had a bunch of songs like that too mm-hmm. that other yeah. people mm-hmm. did because it was he was considered not a singer. Yeah, well, because his voice is so weird. I feel like it would <laughs> would not be out of line to say that that's that. Um, I will always love you came out like popularly with the bodyguard. I don't think anybody like would argue that it was well known before. Sure, and like similarly, it's basically Whitney Houston's song now. Like it's yeah. not really Dolly Parton's song anymore. It became hers. You know, same with Sinead O'Connor. Yeah, they took it over. Yeah. It's like a fun little fact. That, oh, did you know that Prince actually wrote that song? Yes, everybody knows that because we all watched, like, <laughs> I Love the 80s on VH1 but or whatever. But the Prince but, like, version doesn't have the same, <laughs> it doesn't hit the same way. It's just, yeah, it's the, the song is gone. It's ironic because they also did Islands in the Sun or Islands in the Stream. Mm-hmm. Stream. Yeah. Which I feel like also kind of yeah. got away from them and became popular other in other places. But, Who did you know. Islands in the Stream? Kenny Rogers. Kenny and Dolly Rogers Parton. and Dolly Parton. 
Oh, I thought you were saying the Bee Gees did it originally. That would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) The Bee Gees did have an interesting career after Disco Sucks. They basically got labeled like, you are public enemy number one. You represent Disco, which they were like, whoa, we've had this massive career before we even went Disco. Um, You should hate us for this other stuff. No. Um, (laughs) They They were pretty emo. Yeah, they were all very yeah, very sad nice, so. songs. Yeah. It was very depressing. But they kind of like went down in flames with the. It was like they were selling out stadiums around the world to being like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you're going to be playing this one thousand seat theater, and so and sort of like instead of you know taking the hit, they basically went behind the scenes and they just kept writing songs for other people and they like wrote tons of hits all the way through like Paul to the Williams. 2000s. Mm-hmm, just exactly. like Paul Williams. Paul Williams had other problems. He looked a lot like Dr. Zayas. He wasn't going to be a superstar. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he, did. He, he was Dr. Zayas. Yeah. Uh, okay. Aww. Are you guys ready for number three? Number three, number yep. three is Dirty out. Dancing with 32 million. Again. I can't believe it wasn't Top Central. Gun. Top, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't even think Top Gun was on the list. Oh, wow. Yeah. I thought that was way... It's okay, so Dirty Dancing, I've never seen that either. Have y'all seen it? Yeah, I've seen it. Oh. Uh-huh. It's fine. It's kind of required when you're a girl, but mm-hmm. somehow I got out of it. Uh, <laughs> I, Emily, uh, I saw it later in my 20s. And yeah. how would you describe the dancing? Uh, I would say it's dirty. <laughs> so it lives up to the name. So it's yeah. not just a clever name. No. Um, the movie's fine. I, and it's about abortion too. Yeah, right? there's some controversial stuff. I don't in there. like the '80s generally, not specifically. A lot of my favorite, actually, albums are from the '80s. But that like soft focus, flash dance, leg warmer '80s, mm. I just can't. It's kind of yeah. like the early '90s. It's like the late '80s, early. It's not my thing. If you mm. really like that, you're gonna love it. Mm-hmm. Patrick Swayze it's is a super babe. Yeah, yeah, it's very heartwarming. It's just not my personal thing, but it's not a critique of the movie in terms of being like a I feel like it's the female top gun. It's like the the lady version of top gun. Mm, I like that analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I would have said ghost, but I'll also accept dirty dancing because they <laughs> seem like they're kind of the same movie. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um this one is just the poster. So I think it's interesting. The number one best selling soundtrack has got a totally different original art cover. The number two is a hybrid of original and the poster. And number three is just the poster. So you kind of have three different Mm -hmm. versions. And I think goes to show that you don't have to just use the poster to sell their soundtrack. And you probably shouldn't. And you should get more creative about it. I agree. I wonder if it's because of the marketing team. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of... The album art is the same as the poster art. The idea is not to make something original or interesting. It's to sell the movie. It's an advertisement. It's marketing. And so it's just, you need to get people to pay for this movie. So it's not really meant as fine art, um, which is why you get all those really cool online with, you know, the internet and um, especially this came about on Tumblr, but people were sharing fan art, like posters that they had created for their Mm -hmm. favorite movies. And a lot of the most popular ones are very minimalist. And uh, I think those look really cool, but they don't serve the same purpose, right? They're not going to get butts and seats no. because people look at them and be like, what even is this? Yeah. And um, they don't follow the formula. There's a, I, I taught a class at Cornish about, uh, we, we actually, I had them make fan art movie posters. Oh, cool. Instead of, so they would look at the, the official movie posters and I would be like, this is what not to do. But anyway, so I had them kind of watch the movie 
and then come up with their own meta, like visual metaphor or whatever to not sell it, but just sum it up or something like, yeah, I, I think that it could definitely be more creative. <laughs> From what I understand too, a lot of times these artists are having to do the posters way before the movie even comes out or they've even seen it. So mm. they're kind of going off of like a wing and a prayer and a, and a concept art, um, you know, and, and, and I think even some of the most famous movie posters I'm thinking of, um, like E.T. is probably a very famous one where it's just yeah. the finger of E.T. touching the finger of, it's almost like that um, Leonardo da Vinci, is it Da Vinci or, yeah. Um, God. Michael, that's what I was going to say. Is it Michael? One of the Ninja Turtles. Michael it's God touching the Ninja <laughs> Adam's finger. Raphael. And it's very Blinter. similar to that. And it was solely because they hadn't come up with a final character design for E.T. So they're like, yeah, we can't. Uh, we, have, we have nothing to show you for that. And so he's like, well, guess I'll just do the hands. Huh? That makes sense. Yeah, you have to work with nothing. Mm -hmm. Same thing with um, when I did, speaking of the Metallica episode, Don Bronigan, the painter who did all those Stephen King book covers, uh, they would hand these painters almost nothing. And the Jaws guy too, they would hand them just the book. You know, sure. And yeah. they'd have to come up with, or whatever version was finished at the time. And they'd have to come up with it, mm -hmm. which seems horrifying. It does. But if you have a working relationship with the same producer or creator or whatever, um, that could be kind of a sweet job. Because oh you feel God, like you know, that, yeah, you know their vibe and it works and you just keep creating for this one thing. I'm sure it could get monotonous, but it seems like that would be great. That would be so fun. Just do cool Jaws paintings. <laughs> yeah. um, but I wanted to talk about, have you guys, there's a lot of music that I wouldn't have known about any of these bands if it weren't for the soundtrack sure. they were on. Mm. Like OMD. Simple Minds, because speaking of the 80s, I grew up in the 80s, but more like John Hughes mm -hmm. style. Sure, yeah. Um, which is still cheesy, but... But really great soundtracks. Yeah. I mean, we talked about Pretty in Pink, and one of the big things we talked about was how mm -hmm. great and influential that soundtrack is. And I remember I had it, and it's got... I don't know. I mean, so I didn't grow up in the 80s. I was born in the 80s. But like how big bands like Psychedelic Furs really were in the mainstream, I got to imagine they were at least kind of underground. And I mean, they're getting pretty big exposure. There's a couple of Psychedelic Furs songs on that Perry and Pink soundtrack. So definitely John Hughes was was giving a lot of exposure. Yeah. Um, and I, I think soundtrack soundtracks to those kinds of movies were kind of like my gateway into new music because when I was growing up there wasn't the internet and so I couldn't google like you know 80s art new wave band but if I saw the girl on the pretty and pink cover and thought she looked cool then the music in that movie could maybe be like a door to mm. finding other music like I didn't have another way to find music and so I think I listened to a lot of soundtracks when I was younger because I heard the music in the movie and that was like kind of my only way especially pre-teenage years when you don't really have friends that you would talk to music about, how else would you find music? Yeah. It's a good sampler platter. Yeah. For, it's like a comp, but for, you know, yeah. everybody. It's like and, a mixtape of this type of character. Yeah. I was going to say that like it, it kind of almost, um, it's an aesthetic that you can 
dive into. If you're like, I really love this Pretty in Pink character and yeah. this aesthetic, mm-hmm. here's your soundtrack that you're supposed to be listening yes. to. Even if it's not perfectly correct, it's I'm still... into yellow zoot suits. I've been painting my face <laughs> green. I have a feather in my hat. I love Tony, Vanessa Tony, Williams. Kind of what is for me? Yeah. <laughs> Brian Setzer yeah. Orchestra. Sign me up. <laughs> Done. But I think that's a good point. And I would bring up the time period that I did grow up in. Wes Anderson is one of, is like, I would argue, banked his entire career on this. That yeah, he has 100%. created an aesthetic. And part of that aesthetic mm-hmm. is his soundtracks. And he has basically, I mean, not only exposed a ton of people like myself to maybe new and interesting music, but also created, uh, I don't know, like a, a character, a human being of the like what was defined as a hipster for a very long time, just based around the music and the visual aesthetic of his films. But I think the music played such a heavy role. They were almost like music videos in a way. Yeah. And Wes Anderson was a good way to find about music that you couldn't really Google at the time. Sure, like you yeah. couldn't, like, how would you hear about the creation? You know what I yeah. mean? Like a lot of it was so underground and so you couldn't find it. And it is crazy how it, far removed from the internet, like 2004 was. Oh, yeah, I don't even yeah. know if Google was as big. You were using yahoo.com or something. For to, sure. It was all ask Jeeves for days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll get my unpopular opinion out of the way early. I think Wes Anderson movies could have just been photo shoots. <laughs> Sorry, not a fan. But yeah, if, if Gene it's Hackman does music, not agree with you, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> but if it's a, anything that's a gateway to music, is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, generally, I would agree. I enjoy Wes Anderson. It's depressed rich people. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. You've got a I good point. Know. But but I think as far as the music goes, it did put a big platform to bands. Like he will put two kink songs in there. And it's not like the obvious ones. It might be one like a deep cut or one from a later record mm-hmm. that then, you know, if you're in high school, that could be like it. You could form yeah. an entire personality around that one song. <laughs> yeah, people have. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I have a question. Is there a movie that doesn't have a score that only has songs? What would be an example of that? Oh, for sure. Like Quentin Tarantino stuff. Like Pulp Fiction. You know, like Pulp Fiction. I think Quentin Tarantino is the other one that literally people have built their entire personalities around Quentin Tarantino Mm -hmm. films. And you think about a movie like Pulp Fiction, like when Miserloo comes on, that surf song and they're dancing to it. Like that is not just an iconic film moment but Mm -hmm. that song became popular out of nowhere i'm sure it helped rocket the soundtrack because somebody who likes that movie might not and this is kind of goes to your point emily might not go out and buy like a surf they're not listening to that record and listen to that because i was listening to dick dale and they were bullying me and then that movie came out (laughs) (laughs) this is what i've been listening to this whole time and they're like yeah but you were listening to it when it was uncool accurate (laughs) Yeah. I heard Dick Dale um, 
like 10 feet away from me play his guitar and it blew my face off. Did your face uh, melt off? It melted. I couldn't believe I was like, what? It sounds It recovered like so well. You have a perfectly wonderful looking face. I can't believe it melted <laughs> off. I, yeah, I glued it back together. Yeah, I, I, yeah, he's, I think he's incredible, but I wasn't a fan. Who's a, like, I wouldn't have thought I was a fan, yeah, but I need was, to understand. I'm not, I'm not cool. I wasn't cool when I grew up. <laughs> Yeah, but I listened it, to it doesn't matter. The like, mask. <laughs> it's I didn't have any opinion. I was neutral. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I just didn't think about it. And then I heard it and I was just like, oh my God, that's why people are crazy about this. Team Dick. Yeah. Yeah. And he was also insane. He he got interviewed that day. And the interview, I'll send y'all a link to it. It's almost it's like pretty mind melting too. Okay, I'd love to hear it. And I could imagine that there was people who, you know, were record nerds that were obsessed with like some band from the sixties. It was semi-obscure. And then Wes Anderson puts it on a soundtrack and like, no, that was my band. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, and that, and that could happen tomorrow with a movie that comes out. Um, definitely there are movie soundtracks. I think using more obscure musical references has become more popular where you could watch like some random terrible or mediocre Netflix show and the music will all just be really obscure, incredible stuff. And you're like, who, how did they like, this doesn't go with this. And how did they make that happen? I think, I think it's better for, for people to, for obscure music lovers to be upset about that than the opposite. I don't know. I guess I, I would rather that than a bunch of sameness. Yeah, I agree. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. At least there should and be. And I a think spectrum. a good song can elevate a mediocre movie for sure. I'm like not Absolutely. enjoying a movie, and all of a sudden they put on a track I like, and I'm like, all right, I think I actually like this better. <laughs> yeah. And there's been times like even now, like I mentioned, I'll be watching something kind of lame on Netflix, and a song will come on, like, what is that? And I quickly try and exactly pause it I- and pull out my phone and do the uh, what's the Shazam? Shazam. 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 Yeah. That's what I was gonna say. I saw a boring show on Netflix, but they had all Brian Eno's rock songs from oh. his Which rock album i Maybe can't I remember it's the that. one where that kid dies and she can see everyone looking for her i that cannot remember one. the name of it but it's like all brian eno i'm sure if thing. i google brian eno kid dies yeah brian eno <laughs> kid dies so i can add my unpopular opinion are we waiting for one time or does it get added in, in the middle just do it now <laughs> let's get it out of the okay. way so um, it's tangentially related to Brian Eno. So my husband ordered Brian Eno music for airports because we're at the point of records where like we're looking for the old one because we don't have a need. And so he found it for a reasonable price, like a earlier version. And he was like, hey, I ordered music for airports, but I got you a record too. And I was like, what record did you get me? And it arrived and I brought it to show you it's Weird Al in 3D. Ah, I love that record. <laughs> and my, okay, so maybe it's not unpopular, but my unpopular opinion is I love Weird Al. What? I I hope I never meet anyone who doesn't love Weird Al. <laughs> what so you, many people Kevin? don't love Weird Al. <laughs> no, that's that's not an unpopular opinion. I'll tell you what an unpopular opinion is. Weird Al sucks, and Weird Al is not cool. <laughs> no. And music is lame. And people who eh. like him are lame. No, I'm just kidding. Sounds like I'm in good company because I was under the impression that no one else that was an adult person liked Weird Al. Mm-mm. But he also made a movie, UHF. No, I don't think I it has UHF. a soundtrack. 
Oh yeah, it has a soundtrack. And then um yeah, it's like Devo fans. You can't be Oh, that's it's fair. Like, the Venn diagram is a circle of Devo and Weird Al. <laughs> Accurate in this case. <laughs> I love that. That's not unpopular. I hope not. <laughs> I I'm a big fan. Yay. I mean, he's very famous and he sold lots of records, so it can't be that unpopular. He is cheesy, it's, it's though. It's more like comedy music, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, cool. it's like a joke. I think he's cool. People roll their yeah. eyes. I've seen eye rollers about it. That's true. Mm-hmm. It's in the yeah. name. <laughs> Weird Al. Yeah. I'm more of a fan of normal No Al. one's calling him popular Al. <laughs> he plays an accordion. Get, you know. God, this one's so good, too. But I don't like the originals as much. Like when he does the polka songs. No, they're not good. Like Midnight Star. It's not oh, good. Oh, the jacuzzi one where he's a jacuzzi salesman. Ugh. Yeah, it's not good. Bad. Um, <laughs> so, Kevin, what's your unpopular unpopa pin? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have an unpopular opinion. Um, I mean, I, I would say I don't like, I don't like um, Weird Al. So, and I feel like. <gasps> Either one of us, either me or Emily, has an unpopular. One of us is unpopular. (laughs) (laughs) Who will it be? That's really good. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of depends on what stage of life you're in, right? Like if you're a kid and you and you don't like Weird Al, then you're the outsider because he he's really popular amongst kids, right? Because his music he doesn't swear; it's very like kid friendly. What's like some music that you that you kind of can't stand, but you would be scared to post on Facebook that you don't like it because you people would freak out? Like, is there anything like that that all your friends oh. like that you just can't talk about around them? No, no, I, I, I wouldn't. Or that say, you love that they don't like. Yeah, so I was gonna say that I wouldn't say that, but I love both kinds of music: heavy metal and country music, <laughs> and I feel like. The Venn diagram of that person is a Nazi. And so sometimes <laughs> when, I, when I talk about it, I'm like, I got to kind of like tempt this out. Just to let you all know, actually also like Rocksteady and like East African guitar music. And uh, I please God, I don't get that people. out of the way. <laughs> but I do. I, I love, me. I really love country music and I love heavy metal, which I feel like are two niche genres that um, fans of, First of all, do not like each other. You know, country fans don't like metal hands. Um, but also are, are types of music that that people would be, you know, when everyone remembers somebody's like, I like all kinds of music. Well, it's up country music. You know, that, that there's usually a qualifier in there. Or they'll yeah. say, I like all kinds of music. And then I put on a Cephalic Carnage album and they're like, well, turn this off. This isn't music. So I like um, all kinds of, I like metal and country. I just don't know a ton about yeah, I'll make your playlist. I feel like yeah, I'm gonna draw please. a line on post 2000 country. If it's before 2000, I'll give it a pass. After oh, man, 2000, you're missing out. I don't know There's if I can do it. Great stuff. Really? There's some great stuff out there. Oh, you like um, modern, like modern contemporary? Yeah, I, I mean, I would just say I like country music. So I mean, it, it you know, they're like they're artists Yearwood, that are putting out music. Do you listen well, to no, the I country mean, radio? So I think. Uh, yes, but not not necessarily because I like it. I, I would add in a qualifier that country music is a genre, like most genres has sub-genres. And so yeah. within country music, there's like pop country, there's bro yeah. country, there's, you know, hip-hop country. Um, obviously, 
my aesthetic moves more towards 60s and 70s so i love country music of the 60s and 70s um the outlaw stuff willie whalen and the boys what about chris gaines what's your opinion on chris gaines chris gaines big <laughs> fan big fan of chris gaines <laughs> love an emo face <laughs> what um um so country and metal ha, is has there, there country ever, metal yeah i was gonna say was there a you movie know, there's 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 been people who have done things that uh are you know sort of in that realm um so there's a very famous heavy metal band people may have heard of called pantera and some of the members of pantera started a band with or like they recorded an album with uh an outlaw country artist called david allen co and it is sort of like a collaborative that's basically like country metal and it's very bad <laughs> it's not good oh. um and there's been some bands that have kind of like dabbled in in doing a sort of like southern countrified metal and again it's it just feels racist like even if they're not it just there's something about that that just feels wrong to me yeah. i mean i'm not from the south i have no connection to the south and southern music and i think that's a big piece of country music history mm. and so you know i am from the thing. south but um i just wanted to also add that there's a lot in mexico uh metal is huge there's a lot of mexico oh, God, city yeah. metal. you know what so else is huge in it's not always racist country music yeah is huge there too yeah so um, see is yeah, only in point. america will you be <laughs> need to find some good mexican yeah bands. that's probably true I think there's one that I would shout out. They're called Panopticon, and it's like a one-man black metal band. Black metal is like the most extreme version of metal where it's just like the agonies of a dying soul recorded on a you know $2 boombox in a McDonald's bathroom. <laughs> and it's this guy who's from Kentucky, and all of his music is it's, – it's mostly about like a return to nature, but also like a – form of primitivism mixed with like protest music about coal country and the destruction of capitalism in, in Kentucky. And he recorded this really incredible album that has it's black metal with banjo and like bluegrass interludes that sounds like it wouldn't work. And it sounds bad and cheesy, but it's actually really fantastic and was really critically acclaimed and well-received. So cool. Panopticon's Kentucky album is, is worth checking out. Oh, wow. and, it, and, it, and it's a bit of a, a um, you know, in the center of those two genres but well i think we did nice. a pretty unpopular good job for most. we did a pretty good job with unpopular opinion the game show <laughs> everybody wins did you have uh something else to say about scores we're talking about ennio morcone yeah i think the other big one he's huge but mm, yeah. the other big one and probably bigger is john williams john williams yes. is like probably the most famous composer of all time on, he's come up on our podcast a million times. What I like to say is, if you can hum it, then John Williams wrote it. He's done Star Wars. He's done Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, and Jaws. So, I mean, like, you know, the most famous movie scores that have a very recognizable theme. Like, these are, these are you know, I don't know if call them classical, but they're orchestrated pieces of music, no lyrics, that are essentially pop songs. Right, just in, yeah. in their memorability, memorab, memor. You can memorize them. Yeah, I don't what know what that's that called. Yeah, is there a noun for that? Uh, memorability. <laughs> but yeah, so I think he he he's the other one that I would say, as far as scores, that I could see people actually maybe buying some of these soundtracks. Um. So 
speaking of Jaws, that is one of the most famous scores of all time. And it's something really fun to do when you're at a thrift store to just play on the piano. Those two keys. <laughs> <laughs> I got to try that. I've, I've really been yeah, missing out and not up. doing that. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. Cause it's easy to, to anyways, you don't have to know how to play. But <laughs> it's scary. It's instantly scary. Oh, um, but so the guy who painted the poster, like we were in the book cover, actually, it started as the book cover for Bantam Books. Um, and the guy who painted it, his name was Roger, shoot, Roger Castell or Castell. Um, and he uh, kind of got screwed over. So he... Um, yeah painted the jaws and it wasn't just him though it was kind of a team effort so he worked for bantam books and his boss gave him the manuscript or the yeah the book itself um and had him read it and he found within the first couple pages his inspiration for that poster <laughs> for the cover which sounds classic he's like <laughs> read a couple I'm he's like i'm not reading this whole thing no way <laughs> naked girl gets shark killed. got it got it naked <laughs> yeah. lady killed so so yeah. he he's like boom i have it so he does a preliminary sketch he shows the art director for the for the book and they were like he was like make the shark bigger <laughs> make it bigger so he just kept making the shark bigger and it also the up, boobs make the boobs bigger the boobs too. <laughs> gotta be but then for the movie he had to cover the boobs with sea foam i know um Fruitish america so for the model it wasn't the actress from the movie a lot of people thought it was but it was a a model who um was suggested to him and all he did was set up two stools and she laid across them in the swimming position he painted her and gave her $35. And that's all she got <laughs> for the well, most, you mentioned one of the most that famous the, posters of all time. It, you mentioned the artist got screwed, but it kind of sounds like the model got well, screwed. Well, the story's the not over. <laughs> so, yeah, she Considering did inflation, $30 is actually like $100. <laughs> so. It wasn't painted in 1910. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody got screwed over back then, except for the people at the very top. Except yeah, Spielberg. Back then. <laughs> yeah, it's a pyramid scheme we live in here, folks. Um, but yeah. So metaphorically, we're all the naked swimmer. And, and capitalism is the shark, is right? The shark. It's coming up from underneath. You don't think it's there, but man, it's going to get you. <laughs> in this analogy, I want to be the boob sea foam. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You're just running around, like, covering everything up. I'm, I'm the water because I'm, like, um, just covering up. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're the vehicle yeah. facilitating the death of the, the woman yeah i'm the person in denial um so yeah so she did that he paid her 35 dollars. she says that she didn't get recognized even though the poster and the book cover and the yeah was everywhere it was ubiquitous but nobody knew it was her they all assumed it was the actress from the movie um mm. and then um the roger castell said that the paperback had moved six million copies by 1975 he never heard from anyone in the movies. They just wow. took it. They just took his painting and just used it. He never got any, he never got a dime from the movie. Um, wow. Even though. I wonder how much he got art, paid from the book. From the book? Yeah, I probably just. The, like he got paid, you know. The contract. $60 and you gave him Everybody got $35. <laughs> <laughs> Just like a grandparent at Christmas. Everyone gets $35. Yeah, no, yeah. it just went a long way back then. Um, so, 
Okay, so he he did the painting. Um, it got passed around because as the book was being promoted and toured around and, you know, sign, book signings and whatnot, the painting was often brought with it on tour. And they would really? they would put oh, the original painting and have it there. And then that this is how it got lost because it kept getting shuffled. Then it, got, it went to a natural history museum where um, because he modeled the shark after a natural history museum taxidermy shark shark that he saw. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, it ended up in a museum somewhere. Then someone from Hollywood wanted it for something. And then no one ever saw it again. Nobody knows what happened. And Oscar, who was the boss who, who tasked Roger Castle with this job in the first place from Phantom Books, um, was so pissed. He died in 2014, but it was like, this article makes it seem like he was just so angry and he was till he died was trying to get it back. Um, oh my God. It's his was, rosebud. <laughs> <laughs> Roger Castle says, uh, I don't know if it was stolen, thrown out or someone has it. Who would throw it out? No one threw it out. You, Is it still missing? So we still to this day have no idea. No idea. Someone has it though. I guarantee nobody would have thrown that out. It was, Hey, um, Design Freaks listeners, if you're (laughs) hearing this podcast right now and you happen to have a poster of Jaws, maybe just go over and just check the bottom right corner if it's got a signature by the artist. That might actually be the real painting. If it's an oil painting, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't say the dimensions of it, but I wonder how big it was. It must have been big because they have to shrink it down to for the quality resolution. But yeah, so I thought that was an interesting and kind of sad story without an ending. That is really sad. I think it's really interesting that they used the album art. I mean, we're talking about just mm-hmm. them using the poster to cover the the, the soundtrack, and yep. it, they even got lazier. <laughs> they just used the book. So the album art, or the 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 painting, they paid sells one the book, person once. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. The the book sells the movie. The movie sells the soundtrack. That's wild. And everybody wins except except the Cal- model and the and the shark that the the dead shark. Yeah, the shark was already taxidermied, so it's fine. But yeah, it's kind of of crazy, and it kind of just shows, like, also back then, people were not litigious artists, especially, you know, nobody knew, like, how do I, yeah, make sure, how do I license things? I don't know. They should teach people that in school. (laughs) They really should. They're part of a design firm. I got to imagine a lot of this is, like, they're, they're, you know, to this day, MGM makes a movie. They're just hiring a design firm or they have an in-house firm. So, like, mm-hmm. it's really hard for an artist or a designer to even claim, mm-hmm. you know, claim rights over their their own work when it's that situation. Unless you end up with a union. A lot of stuff in mm-hmm. the in the movies is unionized and mm-hmm. so there may be some more of that. But um, And they're protected yeah. by lawyers. But, like, if you're some hotshot artist and you have a – maybe you have a crappy agent – or something yeah yeah your manager kind of sucks or you've been with them forever like that's what a nightmare but it's a payoff like i was gonna say don brodigam again the metallica album artist that painter he loved seeing his work everywhere there's no way he saw a dime for the all the t-shirts and all that stuff like yeah it just go it belongs to the world at a certain point you know sure and the payoff put on your resume man And the, the payoff is your work is everywhere. Maybe you don't get compensated, but I don't know. What's more important? 
So is there anything else you guys want to direct people to? How do people find you at Deadbeat Film Society on all the things? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I strongly recommend everyone, whether you enjoyed this episode of Design Freaks or not, you check out our podcast. It's called the Deadbeat Film Society. That's four words, Deadbeat Film Society. It's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. It's anywhere you are listening to this podcast. Um, and every other week we drop an episode about a film where we talk. I would recommend you start with the episode we did with Clarita on The mm-hmm. Phantom of the Paradise. It was super fun chat. Um, and then go through our back catalog, find your favorite films. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at DB Film Society and on Instagram at Deadbeat Film Society. Like I said, new episodes every two weeks and we're teasing it all the time. So um, follow us on the socials and, and let us know what your favorite film is and what you want us to talk about next. Because we have done listener suggestions in the past. That's how we ended up talking about Videodrome. So um, hit us up and let us know what you you want us to talk about. We've already done Jaws, so mm-hmm. uh, we didn't talk about the painting. So maybe maybe check that one out. Awesome! Um, thanks, guys. Thanks. Uh, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I learned a lot. It was enjoyable. We lived. We laughed. We <laughs>